0: So this morning we're entering back into story time as we finish off our series on Esther. So this is focusing on Esther 9 verse 20 to Esther 10 verse 3. It makes sense that my story would open with a feast and then close with another. It certainly can be said that during my time we loved a feast. But the tone of the feast at the beginning was vastly different when compared with the tone of the feast at the end. At the beginning, the people feasted out of pride. They feasted for themselves. They feasted to celebrate their excess, their wealth, their power. All pomp and grandeur were displayed for these feasts. All nobles and princes and officials were invited, traveling from afar to attend, to witness a portion of what the king had to display. And it seemed that the theme of these early feasts was to have more, was to have most, was to have best. But the feast at the end, the feast that you hear about in the closing of my story, is in quite the contrast. During the feast at the end, the people feasted in gratitude. They feasted For one another, they feasted to celebrate their togetherness as their sorrow was transformed into gladness, as their mourning became joy. They feasted to celebrate their survival. The theme of this feast at the end was to remember. And they marked that remembrance by coming together, by sharing gifts of food with one another and giving presents to the poor. And unlike the one-off, the excessive event that they had at the beginning, this feast at the end became an annual festival, a day each year for the people to remember. And while I guess I'm thankful for those feasts at the start, I'm thankful because I know that I wouldn't be where I am today if they hadn't happened But I know that I'm thankful for the feast at the end, because without it, my story could have ended in massacre. My story would have ended with violence and death and the slaughtering of over 75,000 individuals who opposed my people. And no one wants their story to end like that. So I am thankful for Mordecai's action that he wrote to the people, that he recorded the events that had been a part of our journey, and he sent out this letter proposing to the Jews that they take this one day a year as a day of remembrance. And the Jews, they happily accepted his proposal, that on March 8th or 9th, depending on where they lived, they would rest, they would feast, they would give gifts, and they would remember. Because those days were a novelty to us, really. Those days shouldn't have existed for us, or we shouldn't have existed for those days. Neither me, nor Mordecai, nor any Jew throughout the provinces of King Xerxes' reign should have lived to see March 8th that year. Not one of them. Because the 7th of March was the day that had been determined our lives would come to an end, that our people... Would end, And it was all determined by one evil man. Haman, he was our enemy. He couldn't stand the Jews. He couldn't accept that we lived by the laws of God, that we worshipped our God, that we would not bow down to him. Haman wanted power, and our faith in God opposed that power. It posed a threat to his gaining of power. And so his most logical conclusion was just to get rid of us. And it seemed like he just couldn't wait for the day of killing. So much so that his very first question, when the thought crossed his mind, was when. And I guess we were fortunate in the end that when he cast the dice and decided the date would be the 7th of March, we were allowed almost a year more on this earth. Haman cast the lots in April and they spelt out the date of the 7th of March, the next year. The lots that had been cast were called Purim. And the Purim had spoken. None of the Jews were going to live past that following year. And somewhat surprisingly, for a king who had always been so kind to us, Xerxes certainly didn't lag in authorizing Haman's plan to kill. And as the king and Haman sat back to share a drink together, the fortress of Susa, the Jews under his reign, fell into confusion as they received news from the palace. My people's fate had fallen into the hands of an evil man who cast lots, Purim, to determine our destiny. How could this be? Even though I know the story, even though I lived through to the end of the story, it still baffles me that our lives could hang in the balance for all of those months. We teetered on the edge of death for almost a year, all because of Purim. We were God's people, the people of the God of Israel, and our destiny was being determined by a man casting dice, seeking guidance from any God, not from our God, not from the one true God, but just idols, nobodies, nothings. It still enrages me that Haman ever thought he could take control like this. Perim at that time was like a dirty word, and it wasn't even our word. It wasn't a Hebrew word. The root of it, purr, came from the Persian language like a loan word to us, like something that we could use to describe the horror that was awaiting us. And we simply added im onto the end of it to make it sound more Hebrew at least. This word was only used in my book. We have our own word to describe what Haman did by throwing the dice for our destiny. And that word is "gural." And the thing about gharal is that it can be used much like your English word, lot. It can describe what's being cast, and it can describe what the outcome is. Lots can be cast to determine your lot in life, and gharal is a lot like that. Our King David, he understood when he penned the words of Psalm 16, verse 5, saying, "'Lord, you have assigned me my portion.'" you have made my lot secure. David recognized that his destiny, that the destiny of the tribe of Israel, of God's people, was only ever determined by God and then only ever secured by God, Yahweh. And so when Haman began casting lots, when Haman began dictating our destiny as the Lord's people, no wonder We were thrown into confusion. No wonder there was great weeping and wailing and mourning. So we had to act. Using my position and Mordecai's direction and support, we acted and we changed things. We prayed and we fasted and we asked, Spare your people, Lord, for it couldn't end like this. We wouldn't be wiped out like this. God's people weren't going to fall at the hands of Haman's Purim. And we didn't. Because of our action, we were allowed the opportunity to fight back. We were allowed to stand up for ourselves. We were allowed to stand up for our faith and our Lord. And we rewrote what was going to be the course of history. And that's not really the sort of thing that you hear about, a Jewish man becoming a palace official at the Persian palace, and a Jewish girl who gains the title of a Persian queen. But we used our position. We made the most of being where we were at just such a time as this. And our fasting, it changed things. Our prayer, it changed things. Our actions, they changed things. We cast our own lots before the Lord, in a sense, when we brought ourselves before the Lord, and our Lord secured our lot, our own Purim. And so we thought we'd make it a festival, the festival of Purim, a festival to remember our own deliverance and survival a festival to celebrate the day that we were never ever supposed to see, a festival to honor the faithful. I wrote letters, putting my full queenly authority behind Mordecai's proposal, and we established the festival of Purim, a festival to promote peace and security amongst the Jewish people of Xerxes' kingdom. And all of this, my story says, was recorded in the records. It's not often that a Jewish queen in a Persian kingdom gets her name and her actions recorded in the records. I'll read to you now the closing verses of my story. King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout his empire, even to distant coastlands his great achievements, and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted and now recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Medea and Persia. Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was very great amongst the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of their descendants. It's a wild story, my story, it really is. And I feel as though it hinged on Mordecai's question that he posed in the middle of it. Who knows? Perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And in that moment, when the messenger presented to me that question, I just shrugged my shoulders and said, well, who knows, back to him. Because I didn't really know. All I knew was that I was queen at that time. And I could either use it or I could lose it. And so I used it. And then all those years later, my actions are recorded in history books. My story is retold in holy scripture. And as for my cousin Mordecai, it just seemed like he really didn't want to die. He didn't want to see his people wiped out. He didn't want to see them come to an end. So he did what he could, and he used what he had to change things. Mordecai wasn't going to meet his end at the lots thrown by an evil man. He was going to seek his own Purim. Maybe I could have said back to him, Who knows, perhaps you're the queen's cousin for just such a time as this. Because it was the same thing all those years later, Mordecai's actions are recorded in the history books, and he is remembered in high esteem in the memory of the Jews because of all the work he did for the good of his people, advocating for their welfare. And our festival of Purim, it remembers this story. It remembers this time. It remembers when we took action and it honours the faithful. And I know when I say that, you might think, oh, yes, Queen Esther definitely deserves some honour for her actions. Or, oh, yes, in this story, we really must honour Mordecai for all that he did. But I don't believe that we're the ones who deserve the honour. I don't believe that we are the ones who deserve the praise because we were just faithful to one, to the one who was then faithful to all. It was a series of events and decisions that led to me becoming queen and through remaining faithful to my God in that position, I could influence and I could make a difference. And it was another series of events and decisions that led to Mordecai gaining the king's trust. And because of the trust that he had, as he remained faithful to his God, he was able to influence and to make a difference. What we did was simple. It was kind of what we knew to do. It was all we knew to do. And it was all about who we relied on. What our God did in turn was miraculous and transformative and it was the fulfillment of a promise that lasted generations. And I know that my story, it doesn't mention his work explicitly, but I hope that through hearing all of it, that you will know that God is at work always. God is at work even when you can't see it. God is at work in the grey times. He is at work through injustice. He is at work in the moment of decision. He is at work to judge the abuser and to protect the vulnerable. And finally, God is at work to honour the faithful. He is at work in the moment of Purim, when the lots are cast and your lot is determined. God is at work. And we can say, Lord, you have assigned me my cup and my portion. You have made my lot secure. But the honor is not ours to hold or to keep. The honor is ours to lift up, to pass on, to give back to our God, the one to whom we are faithful, the one who is faithful to all. Can I let you in on a little secret himself? Will you listen carefully if I share it with you? Please do, because it's important. Because the secret that I want to share with you is one that, I mean, it's not really a secret at all, but sometimes we treat it a bit like it is. The secret that I have to share with you today, at the end of the series on the book of Esther... The secret is that God is at work. God is at work. In all senses of the statement, God is at work. God is at work in the background. God is at work in the foreground. God is at work in your hearts and in mine. God is at work in their hearts. God is at work in this building, and God is at work outside of this building too. God is at work in all senses of the statement. During my training at Kerry, we got the opportunity to spend one of our classes with Murray Robertson, and maybe that name is familiar to some of you. Murray was the senior pastor at Sprayden Baptist Church, which is down in Christchurch, and it's now called South West Baptist. But Murray was the pastor there at that church for 40 years. And in that time, the church grew to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, Baptist church in New Zealand. And so we had him as a guest in our class one day, and it really was an opportunity for us to ask him questions and for him to answer them in his very matter-of-fact way. And I don't think I asked any questions myself, but I still remember very clearly his answer to a question asked by someone else in the class. And their question was along the lines of, how did you grow the church so big and so quickly? And Murray didn't really have to think long about his answer before he replied, saying, well, we just went where the Holy Spirit was working and we got involved. And here we were, I mean, pens poised over screeds of paper to receive what possibly could be our greatest lesson in all of our training, and it was like one sentence. I mean, it made it very easy for noting down, which was good. But what I remember so clearly, the simple statement that they went where the Holy Spirit was already working, and they got involved. The incredible growth of Sprayden Baptist Church didn't come from some technical church growth system. It sprung forth from being in tune with where God was at work. And if the story of Esther speaks of God honoring the faithful, the story of Sprayden Baptist certainly does too. As the people of Sprayden Baptist were faithful to God, as they were faithful to seeking out where he was, where he was at work, what he was doing, God was faithful back to all of them, adding to their number and giving them the scope that allowed them to reach so many more people than they probably ever imagined. Just like Esther and Mordecai, Murray and the people of Sprayden Baptist were faithful to the one, and in turn, the one was faithful to all. At that time that we had Murray in this class with us, he hadn't long stepped down from his 40 years as senior pastor, and someone queried him on how he thought the church was doing now without him being there in leadership. And Murray, of course, was very diplomatic. I don't think he was likely to give us his full, unbridled thoughts about the matter. But he did say something along the lines of, Churches become great places for running programs, for this, that, and the other thing. So my prayer is that they don't let simply putting on programs distract them from just going where the Spirit of God is working. When Murray started, all of those years ago, his strategy was very simple and not really much of a strategy at all to go where the Spirit of God was already working and get involved. But back then, this approach, I mean, it was quite revolutionary. And I think even today, it still could be considered a little revolutionary to most churches. Because we do catch ourselves sometimes in this place of putting on programs to appeal to the people. We need a program for kids. We need a program for youth. We need a program for young adults. We need something to serve our young families. We also need something to serve our families with older children. Then we need something for the empty nesters, and we need something for our seniors. And none of these statements are untrue. None of these things are unnecessary. We do want to appropriately serve all ages of our church body, but sometimes we spread ourselves so thin trying to cover each and every aspect, to reach into every nook and cranny around the place. We try to give attention to all of these things all at once, so much so that we run out of time, we run out of capacity, and we run out of the ability to notice, to even stop and notice where the Spirit of God is already at work. Because the Spirit of God is at work always, and in different times and in different seasons, we will find that He draws our attention to different areas. The story of Esther hinges on this question that Mordecai asks her Who knows? Perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And we discover that throughout the story, one of the key places where the Spirit of God was at work was within the palace walls of the Persian kingdom. It was in the decision-making center of the fortress of Susa. So it was wise, and it was necessary in God's plan that he would have one of his own in that space to be a part of what was happening there. And I would like to suggest that for the story of Ham South, here in the south of Hamilton, we could also hinge our story on the same question posed to us as, who knows, perhaps we were made Ham South, this church, here for just such a time as this. I've really enjoyed having Caleb with us the past few months or however months it's been, however many months it's been now. but so far the goal of his placement has been to sit and observe and then to discern where God might be leading him to invest um, in whatever area it might be of the church. And so he spent a lot of time just looking at kind of what makes up himself, what happens in our day-to-day life, what happens in your lives as the people of himself. And so I'm not going to spoil what Caleb might be planning on doing. That will be for him to share. But what I have particularly enjoyed about having him here is that some of the things he notices as a newcomer are things that just pass us by when we've been here for many, many years. Like one of the things that he's been talking about is the fact that we see visitors pass through our doors on a weekly basis, really. Sometimes, I mean, we're too busy chatting to those that we know that we don't even notice these things, but isn't that so exciting? Or the fact that this area of Hamilton is just about to boom with a whole new suburb going in that at this stage has no provision in it for new churches. Or the fact that our church is unique and that we're the only Baptist church in New Zealand to have a 25-year-old female pastor. I mean, that's not, so, that's not something you see every day. It's really not. And maybe you have noticed some of these things. Maybe they don't take you all by surprise. But these are kind of unique things about where we're at as a church. And I wonder, should we be asking God? Who knows? What have you placed us here for, God? God. Why are we here as himself in just such a time as this? Because, you know, I'm fairly confident that he is at work in some of these places. Because I know that he already sees each and every person that walks through these doors on a Sunday, whether they've been coming 30 years or whether this is their very first time. He knows their hearts, he knows their needs, And I'm sure that he already sees how they might become a part of this family and how we might become a part of theirs. And I bet he already has this whole thing scoped out with the development of this new subdivision. I bet he already sees how it's going to grow and change what this area is like right now. And I'm sure that he knows every individual, every family who's going to move into this community and make it their home And he already knows those who are going to make this place their home as well. And I'm pretty sure he knows what he's doing, though sometimes I'm not so sure, when he has a 25-year-old pastor in charge of this place. And I'm sure that he's working through what is currently, I mean, a unique situation. My hope is that it doesn't remain a unique situation and becomes more normal. But he knows What special uniqueness, this sort of position it puts us in. And he knows what it will bring to the ministry of this place. God doesn't keep it a secret. God is at work always. So why do we treat it sometimes like a bit of a secret? Why do we live like we're in 400 BC Persia, where God is not mentioned, even though we know that God is at work. Esther and Mordecai, they weren't holding their cards close to their chest as they responded to the unfolding situation in Persia. When she chose to act, Esther's first response was to gather the people, to have them fast, and to have them pray. It was the most simple yet effective response that she could really have. And through her faithfulness to God, And through Mordecai's support to her and his faithfulness to God, their faithfulness was honoured as God made a way for their people to be spared, for their mourning to turn to joy, for their sorrow to turn to gladness. And Murray Robertson, he wasn't holding his cards close to his chest when he visited our class that day to share about his time in ministry Because what he had to share, I mean, it wasn't really that special in the end, was it? It shouldn't have been surprising information to us at all. It was a ministry how-to guide in its most simplest form. Well, we just went where the Spirit of God was already working and we got involved. And through his faithfulness to the one... Through his faithfulness to the Spirit of God, Murray saw God honoring their faithfulness by adding to their number every week. And I wonder what we might say when we are to look back and see, if we are to adopt the same strategy of prayer and listening. I wonder what we might see change. What would we see change with the regular visitors that come into this place? I wonder what would change of our church as our community grows and flourishes. And I wonder what will happen if we press into the uniqueness of this church with an out-of-the- ordinary leadership person at the moment? These questions, I think, are worth asking. In fact, I think that they need to be asked. We need to feel out, we need to flesh out where the Spirit of God is working in this place. And we need to be careful not to spread our limited resources too thin and in turn miss out on seeing where God is already at work and seeing what he is already doing. So I think what we'll do now is just take five minutes or so together to ask these questions. Here at the end of our series on Esther, let's take five minutes to ask, God, where are you at work in the here and now? So if you would like to gather with those around you, and whether it's more of a discussion or a prayer session, that's up to you. But what things have you noticed that we should be praying into? What areas do you think God's stirring? Where do you think his Holy Spirit is working. My prayer is that we never stop seeking, that we never stop asking, that we never stop looking for where God is already at work. Because when we are faithful to the one, when we are faithful to God, he in turn is faithful to all, and he is faithful to us. So let's take some time now to discuss and to pray where is God at work in the here and the now. All right. It's great that there's so much discussion happening. Please continue these discussions afterwards. But let me just pray as our choir team come forward and they're going to finish for us with a song. But God, we thank you that you are always at work. We thank you for this book of Esther, which never even mentions you, but Lord, we see your fingerprints all over the story. We thank you, Father, that you are always at work in the places that we don't even know where to look. So please, would you help us to be faithful to you? Would you help us to ask and to seek and to pray? Would you help us to listen to what you're saying? and be attuned to where your spirit is moving and where your spirit is taking us. Lord God, we thank you for the work that you are doing in this place. We thank you for our position in this community. We thank you for the people who attend this church, whether it's for the first time or whether they've lost count of how many times. And, Lord, we thank you that you have equipped us and you have blessed us to serve this community, to be a beacon of your light and your hope in this place. So, Lord, would we do that well. We thank you, Father, for who you are. We thank you that you are always at work. And we pray that we would see that work, that we would be a part of that work here in this place. In your name, Jesus. Amen.